0: Once upon a time, there was a medical mom who didn't have a lot of medical mom friends, so she got on the internet and started looking for said other medical mom friends, and she became friends with a lot of other medical moms. Uh, That person is me, and one of the medical moms that I became friends with is our guest today. Welcome, Jessie, to our show. I think you guys can call her Jessica until you cross that line of like stalker internet friend, to Instagram messaging friend, to we occasionally talk on the cell phone kind of friend. Cell phone, what am I, like 90? Okay, y'all welcome Jessie to the show. She is a fellow Mito mom. She's also a fellow bereaved mom. She is also a fellow writer and podcaster, and I just love her. Today you're going to listen to our conversation And to be quite frank, this conversation was supposed to happen a very long time ago, and it finally, finally happened. It wasn't what we had planned on this conversation being. Gosh, this is like the story of our lives, right? It wasn't what we planned our lives to look like, but here we are. This isn't what we planned our conversation to be, but alas, here we are. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, I'm Susan, and this is When Autumn Comes. Look, sometimes life just looks a little different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and the people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into her eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the caregivers who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together, because we know that this can be a sad lonely misunderstood path but we also know that as the darker days and colder temperatures begin to appear so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn we know that life comes in seasons we know that in our world 24 hours can hold so much change that it can feel like four seasons in one day we are here to help you share your story let you laugh let you cry help you learn and help you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes When Autumn Comes podcast is a program of the Apricity Hope Project, a nonprofit organization created to empower, encourage, and restore caregivers of medically complex and special needs children. You can learn more about our project at apricityhope.org. Well, welcome to When Autumn Comes. I'm very excited we're finally having this conversation. It has been literally one year and one week in the making.
1: And yeah, do you want to introduce yourself? Sorry, we skipped over the <laughs> sure. Yes, and I feel like with 1 year and 1 week in the making, it better be a great conversation. We've waited a long be. time. <laughs> and I'm just I'm just really so grateful for for you for having me on and for the opportunity to share a bit about my story and my family and and my daughter. So, yeah. Yeah, I know we're here to talk about primarily my daughter, but I I do have 3 kids. And Dahlia was my middle child. So I have three children, all of whom are adopted from Guatemala. My husband and I adopted our kiddos um, one at a time. They were not biologically related, which I feel like might be less interesting as a part of my story, except for the fact that my daughter has a rare genetic disease. So I feel like it comes up that they Mm -hmm. weren't biologically related. Anyway, when Dahlia was a little girl, she was diagnosed with MRF syndrome. She developed normally for a few years. And then she was d- diagnosed with MRF syndrome, which is an ultra-rare form of mitochondrial disease. And it's a degenerative disease. And we can get into kind of what that looked like and how it progressed. But Dahlia passed away at the age of 17 last March.
0: 17. 17. 17, which blows my mind. Hmm. I I mean, as a fellow mito mom, like 17, there's part of me that's like, oh my God, how did you do this for 17 years? And then the other part of me is like,
1: she made it 17 years. Totally get that, right? It's both. And the thing is, she didn't become very ill until she was nine. Mm-hmm. At nine, she caught a cold that progressed to pneumonia and ended up intubated and ultimately trached and G-tube, and we were in the hospital for three months. She lost so much functionality that that was really when our lives were transformed. Mm-hmm. So it was really nine to 17, like eight years of our house was an ICU and, you know, yeah. with the nursing and the, the just really, really topsy-turvy life that we never could have imagined. But even within that, I feel like there were phases even within those nine years, right? Because you know, with a progressive disease, the very nature of a progressive disease is that things progress and change, right? Yeah. Seasons of this journey are, I mean, in the intro of our
0: show, it says, you know, one day can feel like four seasons in 24 hours. And that's, oh, I just, I'm (sighs) sitting here. I mean, you know, Laurel, I passed at five and I've found myself going, okay, well, Benji is going to be four in June. Like what, if he lives 10 more years, what if he doesn't like, you know, and it's, it's really hard to not look ahead in the journey. So what did you like, what kept you moving forward? And I mean, 17 years,
1: that's a long time. It's such a long time. It's so it it, it, really when I even hear myself say it out loud, it's kind of unbelievable. Like, you know, like, it's never going to be enough time oh, my God, one more day. What we would do for one more day, right? It's not enough time. And to have 17 years where things were so tough. I mean, one thing to have 17 healthy years, but that's not what this picture was in any any way. You know, season one, I would say, was bringing Dahlia home from Guatemala at six months and having what we thought was our, you know, perfect little girl. And and by the way, she was perfect in every way, except the one way she wasn't, which was this insidious disease. But, you know, she, was, she came home and two years later, we got Theo, our third child, and we thought the hard part's over, right? We worked so hard to get a family. We spent so many years on that journey that once we had our three babies, we thought, Ah, now, now it's going to be smooth sailing. This is our beautiful, perfect family. Like, yeah. Our beautiful, perfect family. And it, it doesn't look anything like what we ever imagined it would look like, but it's so much richer and more interesting and we're, we're ready to go. And then, you know, there were the hints that something wasn't right. And like, So many parents and so many mama bears, you know, we tell the doctor something's right, she's not developing it the same way her siblings did, and they say, calm down, it's fine, give her time, she'll catch up, you know, and that went on for a really long time. In Dahlia's case, the first thing that was diagnosed was her hearing loss. So that was a big one because that was, first of all, the first time we were validated. Something really wasn't right. Because even early intervention had come out three times to our house and said, oh, she's on the lower end of the average. Give her time. She'll catch up. But when she was diagnosed with the hearing loss, we knew there was something that was really, truly not right. But we thought it's just hearing loss. Now, I say that now with the word just. Of course, at the time, I thought this was like the biggest thing that could possibly happen. My gosh, my daughter's going to need hearing aids. Which is so embarrassing to me now, right? Like, so what? But that was like... Well, I do that to myself too. Like, oh, my
0: child (laughs) could have a fetal tube. But like, in hindsight, I try to validate that that (laughs) chapter of me because it was terrifying. And, you know, I can't discredit the feelings that I had in that time. Now I'm like... Oh, honey, you're you're gonna be okay. <laughs> like to myself,
1: right, right. And and I do, and I know, you know, I I certainly don't mean to minimize, you know, hearing mm-hmm. aids is a big deal. But on the other hand, it was something that was fixable, could be corrected with hearing aids. But what happened was, we didn't know why she had the hearing loss. So because she was adopted, we were sent for genetic testing. And it was really very simple and quick. In Mm Dahlia's case, you know, we know so many people, right? We hear all the time about the diagnostic odyssey. And it took so long, especially with mito, which can be so hard to diagnose. But in Dahlia's case, her blood was so compromised that that blood test showed. In fact, the first time they did the blood test, it showed that 100% of her blood was compromised. And they said, that can't be possible so they had to redo it and then it was like 99% or something so in any event that was the diagnosis of five with murph syndrome which was like such a total mystery to us we had no idea what that meant we had no idea about what the decree was we didn't understand any of it we didn't understand the words we didn't understand the prognosis we didn't we we had no idea because it's like we were told this thing That was going to divide our lives into a before and after that we knew was changing everything about our lives. But nothing really changed for a while. Maybe this isn't as bad as they thought. Like, maybe this isn't. Mm -hmm. Totally. I would I would just, you know, again, like everybody does and knows while you're doing it that you shouldn't. I would just like drown in Google. Right. And and Google. It had like this list, you know, because it's, you know, it can manifest with the following ways. And then there'd be like, you know, 25 things. And I'd be like, well, that one's not so bad. Like, it's okay if she has short stature. We can deal with that. But let's skip the dementia. You know, it was like, because some of the words were just too scary, I I pushed them outside of my head altogether. Because here she was, this adorable, feisty, Mm -hmm. energetic, spirited, miraculous child and i and i remember feeling like this disease it's going to define so much about our lives but it does not define her right and that was something that was kind of interesting as we went through the process because we knew that this was the biggest thing that had ever happened and yet she was just a little girl just wanting
0: to be a little kid in my case lorelai Got a came out with trauma. Exactly. And our trauma started literally three months before she was supposed to be born. And our diagnosis, we too were lucky to get a mito diagnosis within a couple weeks. So, halfway through our NICU stay, we got the diagnosis. So, from the beginning, it was always just trauma and unexpected plot twist after one, after the other, after the other. And you know, I look at people who had the quote typical child for a couple years and then got the mito diagnosis, like, and how blindsiding. But at the same time, like, that was the same child, and Lorelai was the same child, even with the diagnosis. Like, that's who my beautiful girl was and is, and and Benji too. Poor Benji, always forgotten. He was the runner up for the whole get the mito first award. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you, you know, I play with these what if scenarios. And on the one hand, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm I'm really glad we had what were relatively carefree years, even though, you know, I thought something was wrong. I do feel blessed that we got a taste of what it might be like to have a care, you know, again, yeah. relatively carefree. So what I know part of your story where we originally connected, I have it up
0: on my other screen, was When you guys were going in for a trial, can you tell me, like, where in your journey you started? Because I can tell you from my experience, I was like, my kid is going to do it different. My kid is going to prove science wrong. We are going to find the cure, and this is going to be called Lorelei's Cure. And
1: all the things didn't happen for us, but... OK, I feel like you're inside my brain because that is exactly <laughs> how I was like, we're going to be the ones. And, you know, they have Lorenzo's oil. They'll have Dahlia's, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And and I was certainly would outsmart it. And and what in the world was I thinking? I mean, it's not I didn't even know what mitochondria were. And I'm like, but we'll be the ones to find the cure, you know. So I started just looking all the time, mm-hmm. every day for some kind of hope online, some kind of trial, some kind of study, some kind of something. And I did it almost every day. And so one day I found that there was this new drug that they thought might be able to um, provide, you know, help with the energy right. depletion, which of course is the crux of, of what we needed with the mitochondrial disease. And so I contacted the the study The people at the bottom of the of the study, you know, had the doctor's name. And I looked through them and tried to figure out, you know, do I know anybody who knows anybody and all that kind of stuff. But I contacted one and I couldn't believe it because he got back to me right away. And, of course, in retrospect, it's like, well, yeah, because he needed people to be in his study. But I was like, okay, this is it. You know, so that was gosh, that must have been when she was maybe seven. I found that. And that was going to be happening through NIH. And I wrote to them and they were going to call, after, you know, speaking with this researcher, I had to officially apply to be in the study. And it was a lot of back and forth. And then in the middle of it, NIH shut down and then they opened back up and I had the interview. And what was interesting was they said, we need some kind of symptom that is compromised, you know, something that something about her that is compromised that can be objectively measured. So gotcha. we know if this medication is making a difference. And the hearing loss became the thing. And so then what they do is they take a sample, a biopsy of her skin cells, and they test the skin cells with the medication. And this is like also, P.S., the least official (laughs) medical explanation. Like I envision like all these people with beakers and test tubes. I don't know. This is how I understood it. And (laughs) see if body responds to it so that they can know if, in fact, you you should be accepted into the study. And each of these steps, you know, sending in the paperwork at the beginning and then getting the request for the skin cells, each of them, it's like months, you know, where was a lot of waiting. How did you each step? How did you
0: feel differently? Were you still going, we're going to have Lorenzo's
1: oil, but yeah. Totally. We were doing something. Yes, mm-hmm. we were doing something. You know, it was so powerful to feel like here, we're on our way to, you know, this is going to happen. And so, what ended up happening was right before that trip where she got sick, which was when she turned nine, it was in February. We're actually just a couple of days away from that anniversary, which is an anniversary mm-hmm. I'd like to erase, but, you know, all of these key dates surface. So, what happened was we ended up in the hospital. And while we were in the hospital, we got the letter that we were accepted into the study. Except now her condition had changed so dramatically, right? And so, for example, we live in Boston and the study took place in D.C. So you need to go to D.C. for like a week every month for a year or whatever it was. And, you know, all these things. And meanwhile, we're like, is she going to make it out of the hospital? So the whole thing kind of got back Bernard. And we had been, again, I had been working on this for a long, long time. But I, the researcher, you know, I kept being in touch with her. And first she was like, you're in, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And then as I was telling her what was happening, you know, I could mm-hmm. I could see her emails become more cautious. And But we were just so focused on what was happening with Dahlia moment to moment at that point. And when she was released from the hospital three months later, she had lost so much functionality and she was vent dependent. So at that point... They still we we got out of the hospital in May and we still were planning on being in the study. And the study was set for October. So it was really those few months we thought this was going to be happening to the point where they sent us our plane tickets. They sent us like a list of restaurants in the vicinity. I mean, we were going. And then it was just a couple of weeks before we were speaking to the researchers and I asked them a question about the vent. And it was like, I, I could even though it was a phone call, these like warning bells go off in their office because they were like, what do you mean she's vent dependent? Somehow the dependency on the vent had not been made clear to the people who would actually be conducting the study. And they started backpedaling and I, you know, yeah. fought it and fought it. And, but this was all really now in the course of like two days. Cause you know, they're yeah. thinking like, okay, gotta get to the next person on our list. And I brought in our doctors from home and and you know, begged them. I said, "Tell them we can do it, we can do it." And they said to me, "Jessie, she can't do it she's not she she's just she's not strong enough to do this right now. And that was a real, real moment of changing what it was I was hoping for, because now the notion that we were going to cure her became much less. Plausible. It became less about that dream, plan, fantasy, whatever you want to call it, and more about what's happening day to day. And it wasn't like it was an overnight thing, but that to me was really the shift because the study was this thing, this like I thought it would be a panacea, you know, even though they were always very clear, this is just one thing and we don't know if her body will react in real life like it did in the lab and all that kind of stuff. But this idea that that was taken away from us, now I really had to shift. How were you
0: feeling? Were you angry? Were you, like, it is what it is? Were you, like, upset? Like, I mean, how were you, I I could see myself going dark for, like, a month being, like, I can't process this right now.
1: Yeah. You know, I was devastated. And also, I had this little girl in front of me who needed all of me. Right? And so there's this tension all the time because mm-hmm. you want to feel whatever it is you're feeling. But like that is not even mm-hmm. on the back burner. That's like on a different appliance altogether because you, you need to be there. And then, you know, fast forward because the picture that you're talking mm-hmm. about, ultimately, mm-hmm. we did get into the study right before she died. And at that point, just to kind of round out what happened with the study... I got a call and it was, it was, she was, I guess, 16 at the time. And she had, I mean, this disease had progressed to the point where she, she couldn't move at all. She couldn't even blink her eyes. And she was, couldn't communicate nothing. And I got a call and they said, we're, by this point, the pharmaceutical company had changed or the drug company that pr- produces medication had changed and a lot had transpired with this particular study. But now they were going to be doing it in Boston another version of it. And they called me right away. In fact, my daughter was the first person enrolled. And they said, we want to be really clear. This is not going to change the the trajectory for Dahlia. And I want to believe that I was totally altruistic about it and felt like, well, we'll do it anyway because we can help other kiddos. But of course, I thought, we're going to prove them wrong, you know. There was a piece of me that thought we'd prove them wrong, but it was so so late in the game by that point. And, you know, it was just a couple months later that she passed away. So that last Mm -hmm. bit of tease with the study, you know, I I tried really hard at that point to think at the very least, maybe we can be helping another kiddo. As somebody who
0: has lost and has another kiddo that's still going through this, like, I, I'm i thankful for you doing that with your daughter because every little fraction of research could help probably not cure Benji, but help treat in some way, you know? And And as a fellow bereaved mom, like, I love when I hear that my kid made an impact on somebody and to think that she made that right before she passed one more impact on science of mitochondrial disease like this this clinical trial came very full circle and she still was she was the first one to like get on the list and make a difference in some way like somewhere there's
1: numbers on a piece of paper because of your girl well, thank you for saying that That really it means so much. And I I do feel like hearing about the impact she made on people, as you say, like even today when people will tell me, oh, you know, sometimes I'll hear from somebody who'll say, "No, I was her speech therapist for a week when I was a <laughs> substitute know, the, teacher when she was in three kindergarten. Three cousins twice thing, removed. Right? I, Yeah. But they'll remember her, you know, and they'll tell me a story about mm-hmm. her. And it's like it matters. It
0: definitely. It makes us feel, I mean. Our kids were magical and they didn't do things a typical way, but they still made impacts. OK, so we're going to we're going to pivot here a little bit. We may even take a pause and drag the conversation into another episode. But I wanted to ask you for moms, dads, caregivers who are listening. What should we look for as far as like you just Googled? I'm going to find a trial. I'm going to, this is going to bring our family hope. We are going to do this. Like what pushed you to do that?
1: You know, it's interesting. I feel like at the time, and again, this was now, I guess, 18 years ago, right? So I wasn't, at I don't even know if I was on social media then. That seems kind of crazy, but I don't think that maybe I was. And so I feel like now, there's so much we can learn yeah, yep. from people we find out. I mean, that's how you and I met. And so that's what I would do first now. And in fact, what was the, one of the most miraculous things, when I started to publicize the fact that Dahlia was in a trial, a woman called me from India and she said, mm-hmm. my kid has this Murph syndrome. I mean, it's so rare. And I saw this trial. Can you tell me about it? And I got her in touch with the people who are conducting the study. So I think now the first thing I would do is I would try and just go through yeah. social media because that's where you get the connections. Then it was really, it was, it was Google. And then of course, I got involved with MitoAction very early on. And I think I saw a flyer in the doctor's office or something and they were having a walk and we went on the walk and I got very engaged with them. So I think, you know, those organizations that are specific to the illness family Is a great place to be able to find information. Would you do it all again? Would you
0: go through the trenches of the clinical, the hurdles of the clinical trials? Would you do it all again knowing how it affected your family?
1: That's such a good question. I thought you were going to say, would you do it all again? Meaning, would you adopt your daughter if you knew that this was what (laughs)
0: absolutely you'd do that again. Like, we would never return our children
1: or not do that, of course. Right. Never. But it is interesting, you know, I mean, I will just say, one of the first things I said the day she was diagnosed, I was with my dad and, of course, my husband, but I remember saying, thank God we hadn't known. Because if, if I got a piece of paper that said there's a little girl in Guatemala with this rare degenerative disease, I'd be like, you know, I don't know that I would have signed up. Right. So the idea that we were matched Absolutely. And, and I had the child who was meant to mm-hmm. be mine and I was meant to be hers, mm-hmm. you know, and I and so I'm so grateful that we didn't know just so that we could be together. But your question is a much more interesting and appropriate one. It's and I haven't really thought about it. I guess I think I would, you know, because one of the things that I said at, at the very end, I truly didn't feel like there was anything I could have done that I hadn't. And I feel that gives me peace because I know we did everything in the big sense and in the day-to-day minutia sense. That we could, and I suppose if I hadn't gone through with the trial or hadn't looked for it, and maybe I would have felt oh, what? What did I miss? What could we have done? You know. And so I had. I've never. I've never thought about this before. But and so thank you, because I think I would do it again, and not because it gave us hope for a little while, not because of that, but because now, from where I'm sitting now, I feel truly that we did everything we could and and there's a horrible villain in this story a mm-hmm. horrible 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 villain which is the disease but but that's the only thing that i have to be angry at is the disease not yeah myself that i that i missed something that i could have done differently yeah i i think from an outsider hearing your story i
0: would be nervous because would a clinical trial give me false hope? And like you said, it gave us hope. And then it took the hope away. And then it gave us hope. And it's like almost like a bad relationship, you know, like it's the clinical trial could give, it's like an abusive relationship. You're like waiting for this clinical trial to like turn on you. And in the end, it's mitochondrial disease. That is the bad relationship. It's, you know, it's not, the trial that's trying to help and do good. It's the disease that is such a fickle jerk.
1: <laughs> like, I mean, such a fickle you know, jerk. and I there's think so that, many you know, worse me, words I could use, but we'll stick with fickle we'll jerk. We'll keep it G-rated. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that the push me, pull me of the hope is, is, you know, horrible. But also we do have, as we were saying earlier, the idea that It didn't work for her, but maybe it gives an inkling of information that helps the next kid in the line. Since we're gonna wrap this one
0: up and we're already talking about hope, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests one question, and that is what gives you hope?
1: I knew this question was coming. And I've given it a lot of thought because I think today, when I look at it, the question is, not only what gives me hope, but what am I hoping for? So when I was actively parenting Dahlia, there was so much I was hoping for, again, in the broad scheme of things and in the minutia. So whether I was hoping for a cure or whether I was hoping that, you know, this particular syringe didn't spill or whatever, right, or, you know... Whether I was hoping she would finally, you know, fall asleep, whether I was hoping she, you know, so there was so much that I was hoping for. And then there were different tools that I could use maybe to give myself hope. And now it's like, what am I hoping for? I guess I'm hoping that my other kids are able to live full, healthy, happy lives. And when I say healthy, I don't mean medically. What I mean is what they witnessed and what they lived through as the sibling to Dahlia is a lot. And so I, I hope that they're able to reconcile and, and be okay. And, and I think they're more than okay. I think they are who they are because of her. And I think they are fabulous, pathic people. I think they're heroes. So I guess that's not really your question. And maybe we need to rerecord this because you didn't ask me what I hope for. You asked me what gives me hope. <laughs> you can you can tweak it. You have you know, if we're doing a second
0: episode, we'll just yes. ask you again over there. So <laughs> and I I will add everybody come back next week so you can listen to the second part of the conversation. But can you quickly give us like a 30 second blurb about where people can find
1: you? Absolutely, absolutely. So there are two places. First of all, you can go to my website, which has a lot of my writing. I've written quite a bit about Dahlia, about grief, and then I have a memoir coming out. And so please go to JessicaFineStories.com and F like Frank, E-I-N, JessicaFineStories.com. And then I'd love it if you'd listen to my podcast, which is called I Don't Know How You Do It. And this is kind of, you know, all of us in this world spend a lot of time on the receiving end. And for me, it was always a statement that made me really, really uncomfortable. But I think, you know, it is interesting that we live lives that other people find unimaginable. And then I think there are people whose lives, for whatever reason, seem unimaginable to me. And so that's really what I'm exploring. It's a whole wide range of stories of people who are on the receiving end of, I don't know how you do it.
0: Awesome. Well, we will send everybody there. Thank you, and we'll see you on the next episode. Okay, thank you. Okay, so there's just too much to say in one episode. So we're going to hit pause, and we're going to come back next week, and Jessica and I are going to finish this conversation. In the meantime, if you want to get to know her a little bit better, hop on over to her podcast called I Don't Know How You Do It. Until next time, y'all, stay hopeful.